through the book of Philippians. And we come here this morning to perhaps one of the most powerful passages in this epistle. There are many, but this in particular is one. And uh, you know, we're all very familiar with probably the key verse from this uh, section of scripture. And that is verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is Something that um, you know we have memorized, we have quoted, we have uh, you know we all know this, and yet uh, when we start looking into it, we see what a powerful message the Apostle Paul is sending to all believers here in this passage when he says, "For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain." Now we've been looking through the first three sections or the first two sections this epistle here and we saw that uh, the Philippian church was the first one in the province of Macedonia or in, in Europe. You know, the Apostle Paul started out his missionary journeys into Asia Minor and the church began to go there and grow in that area and then the Lord called him, um, you know, and Timothy and Silas into Macedonia, into Europe. The Lord closed the doors in Asia and sent them into Europe and they come there and the church is established in the home of this lady, a seller of purple by the name of Lydia. She and her household were saved when they heard the gospel. They were devout uh, followers of God, but they heard the gospel. They came to Christ, and then Paul and uh, Silas were thrown into jail. And we have that wonderful episode of the Philippian jailer and the, the earthquake at night as they are singing hymns of praise to God. And the Philippian jailer. Uh, and his family get miraculously saved. And so the church grows there. This church was established on uh, Paul's second missionary journey uh, that when he was sent out by the church in, in Antioch. And then later on, Paul visited them again on his third journey, and he had a very special bond with this church. And later, we saw in the book of Acts, towards the end of Acts, where Paul is sent for uh, trial to Caesar. And he makes that voyage and arrives in Rome, and he is under house arrest for some two or three years, and it's during that time that he writes these four uh, epistles, uh, the epistles to the uh, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and then, of course, the book, uh, the letter to the Philippians. And Paul is writing to them as he is sitting in a Roman prison uh, under arrest, perhaps with his, his um, himself chained to a guard there, uh, not the most uh, pleasant of circumstances, and and as he goes through this, this epistle to the Philippians, Paul keeps going back to his condition and relating what he's saying here to his condition, being in imprisonment and the suffering that he's going through. And we saw that the theme verse here uh, for the epistle, the sort of key message that Paul wants to send here, we find in Philippians 4 and verse 4, when he says, rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. And this... Uh, this message it gets more resonance when you consider that Paul was in circumstances that made it extremely difficult for him to be joyful. It's not the most joyful of circumstances to be, you know, in, in a prison, uh, in chains, uh, facing trial, perhaps going before Caesar, not knowing whether you will come out of there alive or you will be uh, punished through death, not having any certainty about the future. And as we go through each section here, we need to keep that in mind, keep this background in mind, because it helps us to really grasp the, the 
gravity, the, 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 the depth of what Paul is communicating. And uh, you know, the whole theme is around joy, joy in the midst of suffering, joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. And we know that we all face many different circumstances in life. And this is indeed a message that we can take to heart this morning and in our life today. Uh, just to recap a little bit, we looked at this in two sections. The first one in uh, verses uh, 3 to 11, and this section was all about thankfulness. It's about Paul's thankfulness and his concern for his fellow believers. Paul had a habit of giving thanks. We can look at every epistle. He always starts out with this thing. Verse 3 says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He was thankful for these believers. He was thankful for the memory of them. He was thankful uh, for their fellowship. He gave thanks for uh, what God was doing in their lives, for the growth that they were experiencing in their life. And as a result of his constant thanksgiving, uh, Paul had a longing in verse 8. He says, for God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. He had this longing and affection for his fellow believers. And then he prayed for them. And he didn't pray for their temporal needs or their material needs or their health or any of those things, but rather he prayed that they may abound in their love for each other in verse 9. He prayed that their love may be rooted in the word of God. He prayed that, in, that they would be rooted, their love would be rooted in discernment. He prayed that they may abound in the fruits of righteousness. And we looked at the application of this to us, of how important it is. Keep in mind that the theme is joyfulness. How can you be joyful in your life? You can be joyful by always having a heart for your fellow believers, by being thankful for them, by interceding for them. How much do we intercede for our fellow believers? How much do we have a habit of being thankful for them? To what extent are we focused on their goodness rather than their deficiencies or their faults? Are we thankful for the work that God is doing in the life of our fellow believers in the church? Do we have a longing and an affection for them? Do we have this kind of genuine love for them? And then in the second uh, section, verses 12 through 18 that we looked at last month, we see that Paul viewed his difficult circumstances from the perspective of the propagation of the gospel. So he was in, in prison, he was in jail, he was not knowing where things were going, and yet he looked at all of his difficulties and he says in verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. See, Paul didn't care what he was going through. He was not too concerned about the difficulties. He was not too concerned about the worry about what was to come, what his fate was once he stood trial before Caesar, but rather he looked at all of these difficulties as facilitating the furtherance of the gospel. And he says, the palace guard has heard the gospel because of my chains. He says other believers have been emboldened because uh, to preach the gospel because of my chains and because of my example. And he looked positively at all those who engaged in gospel ministry, even though there were some who were against him, some who were preaching the gospel with, with um, uh, negative motives, who were against him. Yet he said it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter because he says that some indeed preach Christ even from envy. Some preach Christ from selfish ambition uh, and some out of love. But what then? Only that in every way, verse 18, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. How can you have joy 
in the midst of difficult circumstances. You can have joy when you look at everything that is happening to you in the light of whether it is furthering the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we evaluate and respond to our circumstances? This is the word of God held high. How do we respond to it? Do others see in our response? Are they drawn by our response to the truth of the gospel? Are others blessed and drawn towards Christ by the way we deal with the difficulties in our life? Do we rejoice at what others are doing in the ministry? How often we are negative about people who are engaging in ministry? We want to question their motives. We want to um, look for, 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 for uh, you know, negative things Why they are doing this. We want to accuse them of this and that. But Paul, he didn't have any time for that. He just rejoiced that whatever might be the motive, the word of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was going forth and, and, and souls were being impacted and the church was growing and that was what he was interested in. And so with that, we come to this passage today uh, where Paul talks about his attitude towards life and death. And really when you look at what he says here, um, and I hope I can do justice to this, to the, the depth of the message that Paul is bringing to us here uh, this morning, because it is it is really very, very, really goes against the grain of the way that we think. And Paul is talking here about his attitude towards death and his attitude towards life. And I want to bring before you two main points here. Uh, and you know, uh, I always uh, chuckle when uh, Raymond or Jobin are speaking here because they always start and end with a story. So you know, I'm not a story guy. So I'll ask Raymond next week to do a story for me. Uh, if he can. verses 19 and 20, let's read this, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all, all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So the first point we see is Paul is telling us that his goal, the goal of his life was that Christ will be magnified through him. That Christ would be magnified through his life. And he says here that, for I know, Paul is as expressing a confidence here that he would be delivered. That he would be delivered from the situation that he's in. And we'll talk about what deliverance he has in mind. But here he is sitting in uh, prison, here he is waiting trial, here he is not knowing what that trial is going to lead, not knowing whether he's going to come out a free man or whether he's going to, his life is going to end there as he's convicted of, of whatever crime by the, by the Roman judge, by the, the emperor there. But he says that he's confident that he would be delivered. Why? Because of the prayer of the saints and the work of the Holy Spirit. So uh, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul was confident that he would be delivered because of the prayer of the saints and the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul believed in the power and the necessity of prayer. We ought to pray in all our circumstances. 
say, but very often, you know, it's not the first thing that we think about. And sometimes people come up with all kinds of questions. Well, why should we really pray if God is sovereign and he knows what's going to happen anyway? Why should we pray? And you can go into all kinds of theological answers to it, but the simple reason is this. The word of God tells us that we are to come before him. Jesus himself taught, and he says that you pray likewise. And we see here the apostle Paul is commending the Philippian believers for their prayers. And he's encouraging their prayers for his situation. And he's confident that these prayers will uh, bring about his deliverance. Whatever that deliverance might, whatever form that deliverance might take. He was confident of not only that their prayers would work, but he was confident that the Holy Spirit was working and supplying what was needed in his circumstance. The Holy Spirit is always, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ told us that when I leave, I will send to you a comforter. I will send to you uh, a counselor, my Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, and he will guide you into all truth. He has given us his Holy Spirit on this earth after he left to be his representative to give us the strength, to teach us his word. And he is always working and he is always supplying whatever is needed in every situation. Do we really recognize this? And if we want to know whether we recognize this, we just need to really step back and look at how we respond to the, the simple problems that we have in our life. You know, when we are hit with problems, when we are hit with difficulties, when things don't go our way, the thing we do is we worry, we fret, we get frustrated, we get angry. You know, we ask questions, why is God doing this to us? Why did this happen? Is God not working? But Paul knew, you know, Paul didn't really know how this was going to end up, but he knew one thing. He knew that the prayer of the saints was effective and he knew that the Holy Spirit was working and because of those two things, he could be absolutely confident that he would be delivered. That he would be delivered according to the plan of God. And, and it's not that he knew what that deliverance was, as we'll see in a minute here, but he knew that whatever would be happening would be according to the will of God. Because he was drawing strength from the prayer of his of the fellow believers in Philippi. And he was drawing strength from the knowledge that the Holy Spirit was working in this situation. No matter what we might be going through, no matter what circumstance we are going through in our lives, the Holy Spirit is always working. And the prayers of the saints are always effective. It may not be answered according to our human thinking. But God wants us to pray. He wants us to spend time in prayer. How much time do we spend? How, in, how much importance do we give to prayer? It's usually something that you know gets written off because we run out of time or whatever. But the prayer of the saints is so important. Paul, in every epistle, he talks about how he prays for the, for the believers. He commends the believers for the prayers that they are giving on his behalf. Paul was confident that he would be delivered. Secondly, we see in verse 20, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I should be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body. Paul had an earnest hope and expectation that no matter what happened to him, he would not be ashamed, and that he would remain bold, and that Christ would he had an earnest hope and expectation that no matter what happened, he would not be ashamed, he would remain bold, and Christ would be magnified. And he says here, I have an earnest expectation. According to my earnest expectation, he had high confidence, he had an excitement as to what was going to happen through this circumstance. And he says, 
when you look at it, you know, he, he was confident that none of the possible outcomes, what were some of the outcomes of this situation he was in? He would go into trial. Maybe his imprisonment would continue. Maybe he would be put into death. Maybe he would be freed and, and, and a free man go back to doing what he was doing before he was imprisoned. He didn't know, but he knew that none of those outcomes would be a cause for shame. He knew that God, Christ, would be magnified in every aspect of whatever would happen. He was confident, and he says that he would be bold, uh, that I should, but with all boldness as always, he was confident that he would be bold because he had always been bold. His past boldness for the gospel, what he had endured, gave him the confidence that no matter what was happening, even if he had to go and, and face death here, he would still be bold because he had been bold. He would be bold in the present, he would be bold in the future, whatever circumstances God has taken him through. What kind of boldness do we have in our life? You know, we are so um, you know, afraid to do even the simplest things. You know, we are so afraid to go out and, and even distribute tracts to people, to share the gospel. You know, a few of us went out last week. There is nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing to be afraid of. You know, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? But Paul had this boldness. He was bold. We know all the beatings that he endured, the persecutions, the imprisonment, and he talks about that. I'm not going to go to those verses, but he was confident of this. He said that Christ will be magnified in my body. Okay, Christ will be magnified in my body. And in body here, he's talking about his flesh, his unredeemed flesh. You know, in uh, Romans 12, he talks about, uh, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, our our unredeemed flesh that's going to be redeemed when we're in the presence of the Lord, it is still beset, you know, by, by the ravages of sin, and yet, you know, this body ought to work for the Lord. He was confident that Christ would be magnified. What is the goal that we have for our life? Do we even think about the magnification of the Lord Jesus Christ through the physical things that we do, through the way that we spend our life, through the way, the goals that we have, do we even think in terms of Christ being magnified by our life? Here is Paul, he's saying, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but I know that no matter what, Christ will be magnified in my body. And the third sub-point I want to bring before us here is this. He says that Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Whether by life or by death. So we see here that Paul was not under some illusion as to what this deliverance would be. He was confident that no matter what happened, whether he died or he lived, that Christ would be magnified. And for him, his deliverance could mean that he lived and his deliverance could mean that he died. Both to him were a means of deliverance. And I was thinking about this in the context of what we think about. You know, when we go through difficulties in our life and we are praying, you know, we always have this expectation that deliverance means that we will be freed from that illness or freed from the situation and, and God would take us out of it and he would bring happiness back. But that's not always what deliverance is. But it is deliverance. Whatever happens is deliverance. Even if it ends not in the way that we would want in our humanness, yet Paul is saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether I live. It doesn't matter whether I die. The fact is Christ is going to be magnified in my body. That ought to be our prayer. That ought to be our goal. That no matter what I'm going through today, 
Maybe I'm out of a job. Maybe I'm going through illness. Maybe somebody in my family is facing uh, a terminal illness. Maybe I've lost someone in my life. Whatever it is, God will deliver me out of this situation. And I don't know what that deliverance is going to entail. Maybe that deliverance is going to entail that I walk a more difficult path, but it is still the deliverance of God. And I, can, I ought to be confident in Christ, and I ought to have this goal and this drive that no matter what happens, the way I respond to it, the way I deal with it, the way I walk that journey is going to bring glory in God and Christ will be magnified in my body. The Apostle Paul was very clear. His goal was that Christ would be magnified through him. What is the goal that we have in our lives? And as we go through, we'll see how this message gets even tougher as Paul talks about choosing between life and death. But Paul knew, he was clear that no matter what happened to him, that even being in that, that, that Roman prison, even facing trial at the hand of Caesar was part of the sovereign will of God. And he had to face it because God had a purpose to magnify his son through the deliverance that he was going to bring to the life of the apostle Paul. Second point we see in verses 21 through 26. Let's read that. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for me. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to second thing we see from this passage is that for Paul, choosing between life and death was a very tough choice. It was not an easy choice. It was not an obvious choice as we might think. Paul had a balanced perspective of life and death. He says, starts off that section, he says, for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. We just saw how he wanted to Christ to be magnified in his body no matter what happened to him. But he goes further, he says that his very purpose for living was to live for Christ, to work for Christ, for me to live is Christ. There is no other reason for him to live. He had no other purpose in life other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he says something that's very hard for us to accept. He says to die is gain. You know, to him death was no less desirable an option than to live on. In fact, he says it's a gain. For me to die is gain. It was a profitable thing. Paul did not love his life so much that he feared death. If we go to Acts chapter 21, we see there where Paul is facing the same situation where he's going to Jerusalem and, and people start um, uh, you know, uh, entreating him not to go because of what's going to happen. Uh, chapter 21 of Acts and verse 13, he says, Paul answered, why, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? So why, why, why are they weeping and breaking my heart? Because uh, this uh, prophet Agabus, he came and he took this belt and he says, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And Paul says, uh, what do you mean by weeping and uh, breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, this was consistent throughout his life. 
for me to die is gain because of profitability. What is our perspective of death? You know, if I were to ask any of us, all of us, you know, death is not something that we would look forward to. You know, if I picked one of you and said, are you ready to die tonight? I would dare say, probably none, maybe one, two, I don't know, might say, yes, I'm ready to die today. What is our perspective? You know, we fear death. And I've had a chance over the last few years to really think about this subject of death. And given everything I went through, I went back and, and, and I can tell you honestly today that I do not fear death at all. Because when you look at what Paul says, and we look at that in a minute, um, death is nothing more than a vehicle to get us into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing more. It is merely a vehicle to get us presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why should we not desire that? Why should we not desire that? And that's what Paul is telling us here. You know, verse 22 and 20, I want to look at what he's saying. He says, you know, Paul viewed death as a desirable outcome and choosing between life and death was for him a struggle. It was a tough choice. Chapter 20, verse 22, the latter part, he says, yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I ask any of you, you know, if you had a choice between dying today or living on for another 25 years, I think most of us would choose the second. But Paul is saying, you know what, I'm struggling here. On the one hand, I can die and be in the presence of the Lord. On the other, I can live on. And I'm struggling to make this choice. And we'll see why he's struggling. He's not struggling for the reasons that we might be struggling. He's struggling for a whole other another reason. He desired death. Why? Verse 23. For I am hard-pressed between the two. I am hard-pressed. It is just squeezing me. On the one hand, live on. On the other hand, die. I can't make a choice. I am hard-pressed between the two. Why? Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He was hard-pressed because it meant, uh, he desired death because it meant being with Christ. And he says, having a desire, and that word desire is a craving, it is a longing, it's the same word that is used elsewhere in the New Testament for the word lust. He is lusting for being in the presence of Christ, and he's looking for a word here to, to characterize what a strong craving it is that he's having to leave this life and be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was hard pressed with what I shall choose, I cannot tell. To choose between living and dying was a tough choice for him. How does this choice stack up to us? I think we would all choose life. But why? Why would we choose life? What is our perspective of death and what does this perspective tell us about our love for the Lord? Really, that's what it's about. Paul's love for the Lord was so much that he craved to be in his presence rather than be on the earth. We ought to have a different perspective of death than those who do not know. He says, you are not to grieve as the heathen do. And yet, when somebody dies, oh, the way we grieve, very often it's not. You know, I understand the loss, the human loss, all of these things. But, you know, it just betrays the fact that we really do not have a scriptural perspective of what death Paul viewed death as something that was of profit to him. To die in Christ 
was a game for him. Death was not just an inevitability that would happen one day. It was not just something that, oh, if it happens, it's a disaster. But he earnestly desired. He was looking forward to it in eager anticipation. It was his desire to depart this life and be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. For him choosing between departing in death and staying on in life um, was a tough choice to make. And he had an overwhelming desire to leave this world beset by sin. Think about this world. It is beset by sin. And, and to, be, to leave that world, to be in the presence of the Lord, death for him was not, was just a vehicle, as I said, to achieve his ultimate desire. And that was to be in the presence of Christ. It was an indicator of his deep, deep love for the Lord, so deep a love for the Lord that he had this burning desire to leave this world and to be in the presence of the Lord. How much, really what this comes down to is, how much do you truly love the Lord Jesus? You know, think about someone who's newly married, you know, and they're apart for some reason. So we have a lot of newly weds here. I don't know if any of them have to stay apart, not for long. But if they were, you know, if you really loved your husband or your wife so much, your desire would be to go away from where you are to be in the presence. And let me tell you this, dear believers, that the reason why we love this world so much is because we do not love the Lord the way that we ought to. That is why we fear death. How much do you truly love the Lord and desire to be with him? The truth is we often desire this world. We desire the pleasures of the world more than the love and the desire we have for the the degree of our love for the Lord, Jesus Christ now desire to be in his presence will have a large influence on how we view death. More importantly, it will have an influence over how we live our life today. We love our lives. You know, we think that we are required here to do this and that. You know, we worry about what will happen to us if, if we leave and our children and our wife and whoever husband they are here. What's going to happen to them? I can tell you, you know, that's God's problem. You know, that just betrays the fact that we really don't have the trust in God that we talk about. That we really don't really grasp the sovereign will of God, that he is in control, that he will provide, that he is Jehovah Jireh. And so we think we have to stay here and we're worried if our husband will die, if our wife will die, if our children die, if our parents die, and we get so worked up because somebody's got a disease again. I'm not saying, you know, it shouldn't worry about it. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about it. As we said earlier, we should pray about it. But how do we think about it? We think the world is coming to an end because somebody in our family has got a disease, a terminal disease. We live in a sin-cursed earth. We live in a fallen world. There will be disease. There will be death. But the reality is the very reason we think that way is because we're not thinking right. We are not thinking biblically. We are not having that desire. We are not looking at, at this whole aspect, which, you know, death is, is all around us. We are not looking at it scripturally. That's what Paul is urging them here. He's saying, this is the way I look at it. You know, I am, I am, I am struggling in my mind whether I should die, whether I really want to die more than I want to live. But that's about death. Let's come back to life. And this is where it gets even more convenient. You know, the reason why we fear death is because we don't have the right goals in our life. Paul had a very different goal for his life. You know, yes, he was struggling between dying and, and living. 
why was he struggling? Why did he want to live? Verse 22. If I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. This will mean fruit from my labor. His life was all about Christ. For me to live is Christ. His life goal was that there should be fruit from his labor. His purpose in life was to labor for the Lord and to produce abundant fruit for him. Verse 24, nevertheless to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. The reason he wanted to live on was not because he wanted to take care of his family or his children or his uh, you know, properties or whatever else. He probably didn't have any of those. But the reason that he wanted to live was because to remain, that is to remain living in the flesh is more needful for you. He wanted to keep on living for the sake of the Philippian believers because they needed it. If he lived, it would be for the sake of what? Verse 24. Being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of you because of their progress. His only interest was that, you know what? I prefer to die. You know, if I could die today and be in the presence of my Savior, that is my number one choice. Leave this world. I don't have to deal with sin. I don't have to deal with problems. I don't have to deal with people criticizing me. I don't have to deal with, with people demeaning the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have to go and endure all of this suffering and persecution for the sake of the gospel. I will be in the presence of my Lord and I will behold his face for all eternity. That's where I want to be. But, but, if he should desire that, I should be here. The reason for that is so that you are may progress. So that you are they may grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and grow in the joy of faith. His life, goal, and work of serving Christ and other believers made him to have, this is why he had that intense love for the Lord. Because you see, his life was all about serving the Lord. It was not something peripheral. Everything else was peripheral. His life revolved around serving the Lord and that is why he had such an intense love for the Lord. Now why do we fear death because we don't love the Lord? Why do we not love the Lord? Because our life does not revolve around serving God. Our life does not revolve around doing what God wants us to do. Our life revolves around everything else and we just bolt on service to the Lord. Isn't that the case? The biggest reason we fear death is because we love the world too much and we don't love the Lord enough. And this is because our lives are not fundamentally about serving Christ on the earth. Can we really say, as Paul did, for me to live is Christ? Because, you know, if you can say for me to live is Christ, then the rest of it is automatic. If for you to live is really Christ, you will love him so much that you will not fear death because you will understand death is ushering you and me into his presence. What are our goals? You know, let's not worry about death right now. Let's worry about how we're living our life. For me to live is Christ. Do you love your life so much that you are not willing to lose it for the sake of Christ? Do you love the world so much that you don't have a love for the Lord that would lead you to lust after being in his presence? What are we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ living for? What, what are our goals? What are they goals? Are they goals that speak of loving the world? all the things in the world or are they goals that involve 
serving him and his people and serving his church. But we find it so difficult. You know, we are so busy. Why? Because, you know, our life is all formed around everything else other than the Lord. You know, those of you who are students, you know, your life is all revolving around getting your grades and passing your exams and getting a job. And, you know, why? Because that's what's been drilled into your head. I'm not saying don't work hard and don't pass with good grades. You know, glorify God. But that shouldn't be the center of your life. The center of our, your life and my life ought to be to serve the Lord. For me to live is Christ. It's a very easy, you know, we even sing that chorus, right? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Is it really? Are you and I really, when it comes down to living for Christ? What, what is it in your life that indicates you're living for Christ? Did you come to church? drag yourself into church on a Sunday morning and sit here, sometimes half dozing off because you stayed up half the night? Is it that we come here and we don't even have a, a word to share because we haven't opened our Bible all week? Because we're not spending time? We're engaged in all kinds of other things that have nothing to do with the Lord? How much time do we spend our life fellowshipping with the believers? How much time do we take to take one hour a week to two hours a week to go to a cell group and fellowship with our believers? No, we have work, we have this, we have that, we are tired. We need to live this Christ. If we were to recast that statement, be honest with ourselves. Recast that statement to reflect on our own lives. For me to live as blank. Look at where you spend your time. Look at what you do. Look at your goals. For me to live is what? My wealth. For me to live is my job. For me to live is my grades. For me to live is my status. For me to live is my kids, my wife, my husband. For me to live is maintaining my comfortable standard of living. Paul says, no, for me to live is Christ. And if for you to live is Christ, your love for the Lord will be so intense that you need not fear death. If you can stare death in the face, you won't be worried about the future because you know that the Lord you love will take care of the future, whether you are there or not. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I said this is probably the most challenging part of this where here is Paul, facing possible death, not knowing what would happen. And he wants the Philippian believers to understand this dilemma that he's going through. The sad thing is that none of us ever face that dilemma. You know, we fear, oh my goodness, let's not do that because, you know, let's not go on this missionary trip, what might happen? We might get beaten up by somebody. You know, let's not go do this because we want to make sure that we protect ourselves we are paralyzed by our fear of death. We are paralyzed by our fear of the future. But Paul says, no, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What are we living for? Are we living for our Lord? And when you start living for the Lord, you will get into that intimate love relationship where you will find that he takes control of your life and the things that you do. You will be doing things that you would not have even thought of doing 
two years ago or five years ago or ten years ago. Because that becomes the center of your life. And you will make decisions about your job and about your family and about all kinds of things that you would have never thought about making. Because for you to live is Christ and everything else needs to be built around that. That center, that needs to be the core of your life and my life. And I trust that the Lord will convict each of us to think about this and to look at how are we living our lives. What is our goal? Complete that verse. Don't be discouraged if be honest, but don't be discouraged. That's why the word of God is given to us, so that we can be challenged, so that we can be some mirror to examine ourselves. But let's resolve to do something about it, to make that change in our life and have that goal to live for Christ. May we God be blessed with that. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word powerful word of God, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the bones of man. I pray, Lord, that you will pierce our hearts, Lord, for each of us to look into our own lives. Lord, what are we doing? Lord, the truth is that most of us, Lord, if not all of us, couldn't say today with honesty that for me to live is Christ. Lord, we have so many other things in our life that we are living for. Lord, we live for our comforts. We live for our jobs. We live to make money. We live to guarantee our future, to secure our future. We live for this and that. The world is so many things, Lord, has so many temptations that they throw at us that we ought to live for. And Lord, sadly, we succumb to this. I pray, Lord, that you will bring about a revival in our hearts, in each of our hearts, so that we may resolve to live for Christ. We might be able to say honestly, for me to live is Christ. And help us, Lord, to look at the things in life from a godly perspective, especially this matter of death. Lord, help us to realize what death really is for the Christian Lord. And it is something, it is not the end, it is just another step consummation of our salvation, Lord. Not only will we be saved from the penalty of sin, from <coughs> the power of sin, but we'll also be saved from the very presence of sin. And how much we ought to desire that. Lord, we are not even close to having the struggle that the Apostle Paul had because we don't love our Lord the way he did. But we know that your word is written to draw us our lives a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, Lord, that it would be evidence of a greater love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would throw away the things, Lord, that are keeping us away from you. That we would make bold stands, Father, so that the way we live our lives is a reflection. Father, for your word.